This week, when a friend suggests making some money, Timothy Mosley finds himself in a snowball situation. Before he knows it, someone is dead and he's in prison for life. Welcome to this week's Jailhouse Journal. Hi, journalers. Tori here, and welcome back to Jailhouse Journals. This week, we have a very wild and emotional case for you. Just a small introduction for those who are joining us for the first time. In this podcast, we take you through the real and true stories of inmates all over the country. And how do I choose which inmates I'm going to tell you about? From writerprisoner.com, I find their profiles on writerprisoner.com and share not only their latest information, but the crimes they committed. Jailhouse Journals does not promote corresponding with the prisoners on writeaprisoner.com. Writeaprisoner.com is used only as a tool to find recent and underreported cases to tell all of you about. For your safety, as well as mine, I do not encourage writing or corresponding with the prisoners we discuss. Last week, we talked about William Dothard and his exciting friends. When someone suggested they change up the night and commit a random robbery, someone ends up dead in the basement. If that sounds interesting to you, and you missed it last week, head on over and take a listen. I hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you do, please go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and give us a great review. We are here to give you a good story, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's Jailhouse Journal. Before we begin with our story, let's meet our guest co-host for this week. She's a public school teacher, and here is Amy. Hi, everyone. I'm so happy to be here. I'm a criminology teacher. I also teach psychology and sociology. Taught all of those classes for a very long time, and I'm thrilled to be Tori's guest co-host. All right. With that, let's dive right in and meet Timothy Mosley. Let's know more about Timothy Mosley. Tim was born on October 11th, 1994, which makes him currently 25 years old. He has brown hair and brown eyes, and his hometown is Dayton, Ohio. His religion is Jewish, but he is not seeking prayer partners. He is not interested in furthering his education, and his sexual orientation is straight. He is single, and he has been incarcerated since 2014. He is serving a life sentence, but is not on death row, and his earliest release date as of now is August 14th of the year 3000, and he is currently incarcerated at Ross Correctional Facility. So I've I've got a couple of questions, and I know we've just started, but he seems very young. Yes, yes, he is. That's going to be a very big and key topic in our story for today. He and the other young man that we'll be talking about is they are both very young along with our victim. At the time of our story they will only be 19 years old with our victim only being 18 years old which is very much a very interesting topic that I hope that the audience also really is interested in also. 
being young at the time of a crime leads us into some some areas that make us feel uncomfortable these these two young men were almost juveniles being 19 and all so we're gonna have a lot of questions that's absolutely right it's very interesting to think about a juvenile or someone at the age of 19 being tried as an adult I hope that the listeners take a chance to comment on our Instagram about how they also feel about that buckle up because it is it is a graphic and you know sad story specifically because they are all very young so now the moment we have all been waiting for let's hear from Timothy himself his biography on writeaprisoner.com Tim says my name is Tim Mosley I'm doing a life sentence and looking to meet new people for real friendship without judgment and to make the best out of the time I have. Life is but a journey, and the people you meet and the things you learn makes the experience. So I enjoy meeting new people and learning new things. I'm laid back, great to listener, easy to get along with, appreciate a sense of humor, and open-minded. The most important things in life to me are family, loyalty, and honesty. Some other things about me, I enjoy most sports, most music, art, reading, video games, the outdoors, being active, and good conversations. So if you take the time to get to know me, you will see that I can and will be a good friend. With a little background information about Tim, let's dive right into our story for today and meet a few people that are going to be key to this story. So first we do have Tim, who we just met. But in order to tell Tim's story, there's another very important person that we need to learn about. His name is Austin Myers. Austin Myers in the story will be 19 years old and 24 days old. He is currently 25 years old. We also are going to be talking about Justin Back. He is going to be the victim and he is only 18 years old at the time of this story. So let's learn about some background information about these people that we know. Timothy Mosley, from what I could see, he was a very everyday person. His parents, Gary and Debbie, they appear to be very nice people. However, it's important to note that they never liked Austin Myers. Austin Myers, like I said, is going to be very, very influential to our story. There's a lot of background information on Austin, so let's learn a little bit about him. Austin is the oldest of five children, and his parents are Danielle and Gregory. His mother described his childhood as normal. Both parents said that they tried to teach him right from wrong and disciplined him when he needed to be. Very early on, he developed an interest in piano. He had a great ear for music. He took lessons and performed at many recitals, and he was also classified as gifted in many areas. He tested in the 97th to 99th percentile in every subject in school when he was in the fifth grade. I have a lot of questions already. He sounds like he was extremely gifted, extremely intelligent. Sometimes we don't often think about the two necessarily going together. And what I mean by the two, murder and super intelligence. Absolutely. I completely agree, and I actually found a pen pal who has been corresponding with him for a few years, and she describes him as 
both intelligent and introspective. So I think keeping in mind how smart and intelligent he is is going to be very important as we go over what happened here between him and Justin Back. The other, I guess, question, concern that I have, I'm already feeling some sadness listening to his mom's description of his childhood. And, And we know this happens time in and time out where parents can and do raise good, quote-unquote, good kids, yet they make terrible decisions for themselves as they grow into adulthood, like this particular young man did. Very sad. Gregory and Danielle's marriage began to deteriorate in 2006. And by the end of 2007, Danielle considered their relationship to pretty much be over And at that point, she was having an affair with a co-worker and actually became pregnant. Gregory, his father, moved out in July 2009 when Austin was only 14 and later the divorce was finalized. Austin then started developing some behavioral issues and his grades greatly declined and in May 2009, he actually briefly ran away from home. The police officer who brought him back home informed his mother that Austin had told the officer that he had been cutting himself and shooting himself in the legs with a pellet gun. So his mother immediately took him to Kettering Behavioral Medicine Center Youth Services, which was an inpatient facility where he stayed for a week. He was diagnosed with depressive disorder, but was not otherwise specified, and also substance-induced mood disorder involving abuse of Benadryl and was prescribed Prozac. Wow. This poor young man, he's he's really on a on a bad pathway. A lot of times just this just comes from my experience as an educator and as a parent. Some of the the time periods that are absolutely the worst especially for adolescent boys is when dad leaves the household as they become adolescents. We don't usually see that many issues when divorce takes place when children are younger, but especially for adolescent boys who lose their dads somewhere in those early teen years, it can be especially difficult. And his mom might have not realized the seriousness of his issues because he's misusing substances as a 14-year-old. So, while he was at Kettering, Austin told a doctor that his father had actually been physically abusing him, but both parents disputed that claim. And in 2009, Austin then moved in with his father, and his father took him off of his medications. He's known to love and was loved by his siblings and his step-siblings. He provided them with a lot of guidance, advice, and emotional support. So that takes us to Justin Back. Justin Back graduated from Waynesville High School in 2013 and was about to enter the Navy in early February. He was friends with Austin up until middle school when his parents told him that he was no longer allowed to hang out with Austin anymore. So on January 28, 2014, Mark Cates, who is Justin Back's stepdad, came home from work around 3.30 p.m. He realized that a table had been moved and that some rugs were missing, 
But he really didn't realize anything was wrong until his wife, Justin's mom, came home that day and they noticed their safe and handgun were missing. After looking around the house, they also discovered Justin's cell phone was in the house and his shoes that he always went out in were also in the house. At that point, they called 911 and they tried to contact Justin. When the officers began their investigation, Andrew Raymond, the next door neighbor, said that he had seen a car in the carport. It was a silver Chevrolet Cavalier. The car had a distinctive appearance. Its entire rear window had been replaced by a piece of plastic and it was held in place with red duct tape. And on one of the windows, there was a sticker that said tap out. So Mark Cates actually recognized this vehicle right away and he said that Austin Myers was in that vehicle visiting the day before. So immediately, the sheriff's office sent out a be on the lookout for both Austin Myers and that vehicle. Later in the day, Clayton police located that vehicle and detained Austin Myers at Tim Mosley's house. The detectives interviewed Austin and he said he did not know anything about Justin's disappearance or the burglary at the Kate's residence. And after the interview, Austin Myers was then taken back to Tim Mosley's house. And then Tim was actually taken in for questioning. When detectives finished talking with Tim, he was returned to his house. And their friend Logan, who was unfortunately just hanging out with them at the time, was then also taken in to be questioned. He informed them of some things that we'll get into later. And at that point, the officers decided that they needed to arrest both Tim Mosley and Austin Myers. The detectives again interviewed Tim and then Austin. How old were they again? At this time in the story, they are both 19 and Justin is 18. So the detectives again interviewed Tim and then Austin, and the story started coming out. Austin said that he had been present when Tim stabbed Justin. He said that he that when he had gone to hang out with Justin on January 28th, he had no idea that Tim was planning on killing Justin nor did he know why Tim had killed Justin. Austin also denied shooting Justin's body and claimed Tim had done that. When the detectives interviewed Tim again, he said that he could hear the entire conversation in the room next door and told them that Austin was lying about everything. At that point, the real story came out. Tim said everything actually started January 27th, 2014. Austin had slept through a new, the start of a new job. He then woke up Tim and he asked him if he wanted to make some money. Austin suggested that they rob either a drug dealer he knew or Justin Back's stepdad, Mark Cates. Austin had been in Justin's home and told him that Mark kept a safe containing a gun and it was usually open. So Tim agreed and started driving them to the Waynesville area. Austin was giving directions when Tim realized that Austin had decided to rob Mark Cates instead of the drug dealer. They ended up arriving to Justin's house around noon, but Justin was actually at home, so they decided that they would not commit the robbery. They visited with Justin for about 15 to 20 minutes and then promptly left. After leaving his house, Austin and Tim went to the Waynesville Library to discuss how to get the money. During this discussion, was when Austin came up with the idea of actually, instead of just robbing Justin, 
to kill Justin. Their first plan was to give Justin a fatal injection. Tim suggested using cold medicine. So at that time, they went to a store to buy some. Wow, this is super premeditation. They're planning it out. They're deciding what method they're going to use. These are some evil minds. It's very true. Um, That's going to come into play with our sentences and in our appeals process, just how premeditated this really was. I mean, this was January 27th, and the actual event did not occur until well into the next day on January 28th. So with the idea of making a fatal injection, they went to a store to buy the cold medicine. While they were buying the cold medicine, or trying to, Austin also had the idea of adding a bottle of poisonous bug wash. They carried the items to the checkout counter. However, they could not complete the purchase because Austin's credit card was declined. Austin tried to also withdraw money from the store's ATM, but that also didn't work. At that point, they decided to go to a different pharmacy because they were going to need syringes. He told the pharmacist, or he told the clerk, that he needed the kind with needles, and they pointed him in the direction of the pharmacist. However, when they were standing in line, they decided that they would not buy the syringes, and they decide to make a new plan. Can I just say this? I have been a teacher, a high school teacher, for over 20 years, and this is not the way our normal teenagers think and reason. I'm just stunned at the amount of premeditation and thinking this through and attempts to actually get supplies to murder this young man. You know, listeners, this is just, I can't believe it. Yeah, I I completely agree. However, at that point, they decided to return to Justin's house, and they hung out with him for a while, and they decided to watch a movie with him. When his father, when Justin's father came home, he joined them in watching the movie However, he and Justin had to leave for an appointment with a Navy recruiter because, again, Justin was headed to the Navy in less than a week from this point in time. So, of course, Tim and Austin then left the house and they drove to a McDonald's. And that was when they decided to plot their new plan. Tim proposed that they might as well just return to the house right then and rob the house when no one was there. However, Austin said that that was not the best idea because they had no idea how long Mark and Justin were going to be gone. So instead, they went to hang out with their friend Logan Zenny. So they went to Logan's house and on the way there, they passed Justin's house and they stopped just to scout it out. Later, Austin, Tim, Logan, and a fourth man named Cole all went to Tim's house. When they were at Tim's house, Logan and Cole stayed downstairs and watched TV while Tim and Austin went to Tim's room to come up with another plan. As they talked, they wrote down all their ideas in a small notebook that later will become very important in the court case. So they decided that they wanted to make a quote-unquote clean kill. They decided that they would strangle Justin with a wire 
and then take the safe. The idea was to make it look like Justin had stolen the safe and run away from home. They planned to take whatever they thought Justin would take if he ran away. Specifically clothes, money, phone charger, and then they would dump his body in a remote wooden area. Tim said Austin also suggested that they kill Mark Cates, who was Justin's stepdad, to make it look like Mark killed Justin and then ran off. However, Tim, he wasn't all about this idea because he said it would honestly involve more work and it was just greater risk. So, Tim and Austin headed to a Lowe's store. They bought a three-foot-length galvanized steel cable and two metal rope cleats. Their intent was to fashion a garrote. A garrote is also known as a choke wire or an item that is used to specifically strangle someone to death. They then went back to Tim's house to put it all together. However, in the middle of them putting their choke wire together, Logan Zenny walked in on them. Tim could not exactly remember what they said to him. They did not tell him what they are planning, but they were struggling with putting their garrote together, and Logan actually helped finish putting the garrote together. And they wrote down their thoughts in a notebook. So this makes me go between two extremes. Very smart, yet very stupid. To write down their ideas, they were really never planning on getting caught because, you know, that's just evidence that is is going to um, indict You're going to get an indictment. You're going to have, you know, significant jail time, if not life in prison or the death penalty. So the next morning on January 28th, Austin and Tim bought their final supplies. They bought ammonia because Tim said that from watching crime shows, it would destroy any DNA evidence. And Austin also had the idea of purchasing septic enzymes. He said this is Ohio in January, so it was freezing outside that the cold temperatures would slow the body's decomposition. I'm disgusted. Two young men who should be getting on with life and, you know, having some fun are plotting a vicious, violent murder that that disgusts everybody it definitely really upset me and honestly uh like I said listeners buckle up because this case does get very upsetting very gory um it's it's very unfortunate the ending of of this case So they did buy these septic enzymes, and they decided that they would pour them on the body to help with the decomposition. They drove to northwest Dayton, where they bought all these supplies, including rubber gloves, and they then returned to Waynesville. Austin decided that he wanted to commit the crime at 1 o'clock p.m. So they needed to burn a little time, so they stopped and they browsed an antique store. They then realized they needed some gas. At 1248, they filled up the car. And at 1 o'clock p.m., they pulled into Justin Back's driveway. The plan was for Austin to distract Justin while Tim came up behind him. 
Austin would hold down Justin while Tim choked him to death with the garrote. So Tim stuffed the garrote into one of his pockets, and just in case he was carrying a five or six inch pocket knife, Austin knocked on the door, and Justin kindly answered and let the pair in. They talked for a little while when Justin offered if either of them wanted something to drink. When Austin said he did, he and Tim followed Justin into the kitchen when Tim saw his opportunity. Justin opened the refrigerator and bent down to get the drink, and when he was straightening up, Tim looped the garrote over Justin's head from behind and crossed his arms to pull it tight. At the same time, Austin grabbed Justin to restrain him, and all three of them fell to the floor in an, in an entangled mess. Tim, however, was not able to get the cable around Justin's neck. Instead, it was actually looped around his chin as Justin Back struggled for his life, which, according to testimony in the court records, it was said it took a good couple of minutes. He asked and repeatedly asked why and pleaded for them to stop. Austin told Tim that Tim had missed his throat and that the wire was wrapped around his chin, and at that point, Tim panicked and pulled out his knife and stabbed Justin in the back. Austin took hold of the garrote, managed to get it around Justin's neck, and while sitting on the floor, Austin pulled the garrote around Justin's neck. Tim then began stabbing him in the chest. Tim said when they were done, there was blood everywhere. And after Justin died, Tim and Austin hunted for the safe, which they did find in the master bedroom. However, it was locked. Austin also found a handgun belonging to Mark Cates, which he loaded. They returned to the kitchen, or the crime scene, Using the ammonia, small rugs from the kitchen floor, and assorted rags, they cleaned up the crime scene. They wrapped Justin in a blanket and shoved him in the trunk of Tim's car. They then ransacked the house, taking the safe as well as some jewelry and credit cards, and also, of course, filled a laundry basket and some bags with Justin's clothing, his headphones, glasses, laptop, phone charger, and laptop charger. They stuffed the bloody towels, rags, and rugs into a garbage bag and loaded everything into Tim's car and left the house. So, Amy, how long, just out of curiosity, do you think it took them to do all of this? I would say at least a few hours. I can't imagine doing it any more quickly than that. So they left the house by 2 o'clock p.m., which means it only took them 60 minutes to complete this task. When Tim was driving, he got paranoid about being followed, so he took all side roads to get home and actually pulled over once to check the outside of his car for blood. When they got home, they searched searched for Justin's wallet and found it in one of his bags. It contained a little more than $100, which Austin took. They then continued into Tim's house and rinsed off, changed their clothes, and dragged the safe up the stairs. Tim proposed dumping the body near West Alexandria, an area he knew pretty well. Austin was fine with that, so they headed that way. They decided to dump Justin's body near Crybaby Bridge, and again, they did dump the septic enzymes onto his corpse, which was still clothed and partly wrapped in the blanket. According to Tim, Austin wanted to shoot the body 
So Tim got the stolen gun from the car, and Austin proceeded to fire two shots into Justin's body. After they hid the body, Austin suggested again that they kill Mark Cates, Justin's stepdad, to make it look as if he had killed Justin and disappeared. But again, Tim did veto this idea, thank goodness. And instead, they drove to a park where they proceeded to get rid of a lot of their evidence, such as Justin's laptop and his iPod. When they got into the safe, they realized that instead of $20,000, it only contained paperwork, loose change, bullets, and random items. Austin and Tim separated the items that they thought that they could sell. Afterward, they burned the papers and all of the evidence in the backyard in a fire pit. They then went with Logan Zenny towards Tip City, where they knew of a river, and they then threw the safe into the river to get rid of that evidence. When the detectives found, found this out from Tim, they then interviewed Austin, who again changed his story. This time, he admitted to shooting the body. He also acknowledged buying the materials to make the garrote, which he described as a self-defense weapon that was to be used only to knock Justin out, not to kill him. You know, we don't know too much about these detectives. Um, Different police departments, small town, big city, they have detectives of different caliber in in terms of um, how they interrogate and questions they ask and information that they gather. Did you get the sense in your research that these detectives really knew their stuff? So actually, in just a second, we're going to go more into the interrogation and Honestly, these detectives did a great job. During the autopsy, they determined that Justin had died of 21 stab wounds. And now let's talk a little bit about the interrogation that that did take place. After midnight on January 29th, Sergeant Jeff Garrison of the Clayton Police Department went to Tim's house to find Austin. He cuffed Austin's hands behind his back searched him for weapons, and placed him in the back of a cruiser. Warren County Detective Wyatt arrived arrived at Tim's house around 2.50, and then he opened the door and found Austin actually asleep. He woke Austin and identified himself, explained that the police were looking for Justin back, and this was when Austin told him that he had no idea what was going on, but was willing to help. A Clayton officer drove Austin to the Clayton police station with Wyatt and Officer Barger following. At the station, Austin removed was removed from the cruiser, and when Officer Wyatt noticed that Austin was handcuffed, he specifically told them to take the cuffs off because Austin was there voluntarily. They took him into a conference room. They all sat away from the door, and the door was open. They told him that he was free to leave at any point in the interview. At one point, Austin said that he had been confused because the Clayton officers had told him that he was being detained. Wyatt repeated, you understand though, you're not under arrest. So they had not read him his rights, his Miranda rights, I'm assuming. That's correct. And we're going over this specifically because of an appeal that will be made. 
During the interview, Austin claimed that he knew nothing about the disappearance or the robbery, and the interview ended at 3.54 when Austin was driven back to Tim's house. They then interviewed Logan Zenny. Wyatt learned that Tim had told Logan that Austin had shot Justin and Tim had stabbed him. Austin was taken back to the Clayton police station around 7.40 a.m. and then placed in a cell and handcuffed to a bench. At 7.42 a.m., Officer Wyatt administered Miranda warnings to Austin. He asked Austin whether he understood the warnings, and Austin nodded his head. You know, when officers read a person their Miranda rights, they read it directly from a card, and they actually have a checklist And usually they have the suspect initial that checklist as well just to make sure that they have correctly read those Miranda rights. Very important stuff there. Absolutely, especially because one of the main appeals is the Miranda warnings. If your Miranda warnings are not given properly, you have a good chance to appeal that conviction. Almost immediately, Austin invoked his right to counsel, and therefore the interview was ended and Barger left the room. At 9.27, Austin tapped on the window in the holding cell, summoning Officer Wyatt. He expressed a desire to help, but Wyatt told him that he could not talk to him or question him. Austin then asked Wyatt how he would go about getting an attorney. Wyatt told him that he could hire his own, but if he could not afford to do so, the court would appoint a counsel when he was charged. Austin asked whether he was going to be charged, and Officer Wyatt said that he would be. Again, around 10 o'clock a.m., Officer Wyatt responded when Austin told him he wanted to do what he could do to help him. So he's in panic mode right now. That's exactly how I took it. I took it as these hours of sitting in this holding cell are making him really go crazy trying to think of what he could do to pretty much save himself. Wyatt asked whether that meant Austin wanted to talk to him, and Austin nodded his head. Wyatt read Austin the Miranda warnings again and asked him whether he understood them. Austin said, I think so. Wyatt asked, do you think so, or do you understand? Wyatt continued, basically what it amounts to is you can exercise those rights at any time. If you want to start talking and then stop, you can do that. Do you have any questions about it? Because I want to make sure you fully understand your rights. And Austin replied, yeah, I do. Wyatt then asked, you do? Austin said, yeah. And of course, they're recording this, correct? Yes, these are exact quotes from the actual court documents. Austin then proceeded to answer Wyatt's questions, giving an account of how Tim had killed Justin. At about 1.30, Wyatt and Barger spoke to Austin for a fifth time. Wyatt read the Miranda warnings for the third time. Austin indicated that he understood them and answered Wyatt's questions. Timothy ended up taking a plea to get out of the death penalty and agreed to testify against Austin. So Ohio has the death penalty. Yes, they do. Because, of course, as, as most people know, not every state has the death penalty. 
Michigan voted against the death penalty back in the 1970s, and every state has their own story regarding uh, death penalty and, and how much that particular state invokes the death penalty. So Timothy was charged with murder while committing aggravated robbery, aggravated burglary, and kidnapping. And from his plea, he was given life in prison without the possibility of parole. During his sentencing, Justin's father said he hopes someone will have mercy on him because he has none for him. Timothy sincerely apologized for what he had done. And Justin's mother said, Although his apology doesn't bring Justin back, it does help her heal and move on. You know, when I'm working with my criminology students, we usually spend a fair amount of time talking about, you know, what is the goal of prison? Is prison intended as punishment for the person who commits the crime? Is prison, on the other hand, intended to keep that vicious criminal off the streets? Um, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting question when you really think about it. Uh, these two young men, because they were, they were men, they were not juveniles, they were 19 years old. These two young men, without question, can never be allowed to be in the public again. They're dangerous people. That's right. So Austin was 19 years and 24 days old at the time of the murder and had never previously been incarcerated for any reason. However, he was charged with nine counts, one of them being aggravated murder with prior calculation and design. During Austin's trial, mitigating evidence, which is evidence that makes his offense less severe, was introduced. This included Austin's age being only 19. Austin's mental and emotional health was also evaluated. Austin was diagnosed with depressive disorder less than five years before the murder, and he had engaged in self-harm. Although nothing in the records connects the offense with any mental disease or defect. Right. We know that across the country, we have millions of people who are diagnosed with depressive disorders, but millions of people don't kill people in a premeditated manner. Wow. It's just so interesting. Before he was sentenced and before the jury made their decision, Austin made a statement to the court where he apologized to Justin's family and expressed sympathy for their pain and suffering. He also said that his execution would not fix anything or bring Justin back, but would only cause more pain and suffering to innocent people. His parents, his brothers and sisters, Austin said, I don't want to hurt people. I am not asking you to spare my life so I can hurt anyone. I want to help people. I want to help stop tragedies like this from happening. And he asked for a chance for him to become a better person. However, the jury found Austin guilty on all counts and specifications, and they therefore recommended a death sentence, and the trial judge sentenced Austin to death. So now we're going to talk about a few appeals that are really interesting in this case. Due to there being a plea for Timothy, there aren't many appeals for him. However, there are many for Austin, and we're only going to barely scratch the surface with them. So to start, 
Austin contends that the trial court violated his due process rights and denied him a fair trial by requiring that he wear leg shackles during the trial. In English, that means Austin believed he should not have been forced to wear leg shackles throughout the jury trial because it harmed his due process. Due process is the right of a person to a fair trial. According to Deck versus Missouri, due process prohibits the use of physical restraints visible to the jury without a trial court determination. Austin, however, was considered a maximum security inmate because he was charged with a brutal premeditated murder. His security classification was also increased due to jailhouse infractions, such as fashioning a rope from a cloth. It was recommended that Austin be kept in maximum restraints, including leg shackles. The courtroom was to be cleared of the public before Austin entered, and all restraints other than leg restraints were to be removed before the public was readmitted. Well, it sounds like the courts really tried to cover their bases. Absolutely. They also put up a modesty panel that was placed underneath both counsel tables to obscure the restraints from the view of the jury. The appeals court did not agree with Austin's argument in this case. In his next argument, Austin contends that the trial court should have suppressed his statements he made to detectives Michael Wyatt and Paul Barger on January 29th. He claimed that he was subjected to interrogation without being advised of his Miranda rights. Austin emphasizes that the Clayton police detained him in handcuffs at Tim's residence. The trial court determined that Austin was in custody of those officers during that time. But Austin was not interrogated and made no statements during that period. The appeals court analyzed this argument not by the fact that Austin was in custody before the first interview, but instead whether Austin was in custody during the first interview. Determining whether questioning is a custodial interrogation requiring Miranda warnings is determined by whether a reasonable person in the suspect's position would have understood himself or herself to be in custody while being questioned. Austin also argued that he never signed his Miranda warnings. However, a Miranda warning does not have to be a waiver or in writing to be valid. That's correct. It does not have to be in writing, although many police departments across the country do have a signature just to prevent this kind of thing from happening. As a matter of fact, Austin's invocation of his right to counsel further demonstrated that he understood what was going on. However, he contends that his statements were involuntary under the totality of the circumstances. In other words, Austin claims his statement to officers should not be used in court because he was not able to give a fair statement due to the circumstances. According to State v. Edwards, in deciding whether a defendant's confession is involuntarily induced, the court should consider the totality of the circumstances. This includes the age, mentality, and prior criminal experience of the accused. Austin claims he was deprived of food and sleep during the interrogation. However, he never indicated that he was hungry or asked for anything to eat 
until after the end of the final interview. Therefore, the appeals court concluded that Austin's statements were voluntary. The next very important appeal is Austin contends that the trial court erred by excusing prospective juror number 163 for cause. This means Austin disagrees with a possible juror being excused and removed from the jury. In Adam v. Texas, a prospective juror may be excused for cause if the prospective juror's views on capital punishment would prevent or substantially impair the performance of his duties as a juror in accordance with his instructions and his oath. You know, jury selection, there is so much psychology behind jury selection, um, dependent on whether, of course, you're the prosecuting attorney or the defense attorney. Um, They base it on things like age, race, gender. All of those things are taken into account um, when a jury is being selected for a trial. So prospective juror number 163 told the trial court that she was not religiously, morally, or otherwise opposed to capital punishment, but the transcript indicates that she was crying when the prosecutor asked her, some people don't want to be put in that position where they feel like they have the life of another person in their hands. Do you feel that way? She replied while crying, I am sorry. I just have two boys that are about this age. The prosecutor later asked several prospective jurors whether they could follow the court's instructions and return a verdict of death if they found beyond a reasonable doubt that the aggravating circumstances outweighed the mitigating factors. When he put the question to prospective juror number 163, she said, I just don't know. The trial court followed up. We want jurors who can follow the law based on what I give to you. Do you think you can do that? Her response was, well, I mean, I feel like I can follow the law, but I feel, I just, I mean, the way I feel this way about a death penalty, and I mean, I always felt like if someone did something wrong, they should pay the price for it. But I tell you, when I walked in there yesterday and saw that kid sitting there, I just, I don't know what to do. You know, this is emotional. Death penalty cases always are emotional. But when uh, listeners check out uh, Jailhouse Journal's Instagram, they're going to see the pictures of these two young men. They are baby-faced. They look very young. You know, they certainly don't look like full-grown men. They are young. That doesn't take away the fact that they committed a violent, vicious crime. But jurors often, especially in death penalty cases, will claim or, you know, talk about how how difficult it could be. And the attorneys have to work with those situations and selecting uh, the jurors that they believe are going to be best able to decide a case. So, prospective juror number 163 was removed for cause, and the defense opposed because they said she had indicated by the end of the questioning that she was able to perform her duty with respect to acting as a juror. However, due to her emotional state, it was determined that would substantially impair her ability and that she could not make that decision. The appeals court found 
no problem in this and they decided that there was not an abuse of discretion. So Austin's final appeal was that he did not think that he deserved the death penalty but that Tim deserved the death penalty because Tim was the principal offender or the actual killer. He argued that the death penalty is cruel and unusual also because of his age only being 19 years old. But it's okay for his friend to get the death penalty. That is what he argued. However, in the case State v. Taylor, it states that the killer or principal offender does not necessarily mean that they will get the death penalty. Therefore, the appeals court said that they find no reversible error in the proceedings below, and they affirm the convictions and the death sentence. Currently, Timothy Mosley continues to serve his life sentence without ever having the possibility of parole, and Austin Myers now awaits his execution, which is currently set to be on July 20th, 2022. So listeners, let's go over our lesson learned for this week. Just because someone is your friend does not mean they should be trusted. And when a friend suggests murder, tell them no. But thank you for that opportunity. And just to end, some updates and shoutouts. Please follow us on Instagram at Jailhouse Journals. If you're interested in looking more into this case, feel free to check out the sources that are in our episode description. Also, we're looking for co-hosts. So if you're interested, please message us on our Instagram at Jailhouse Journals or email jailhousejournals at gmail.com. Head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and give us a five-star rating and leave a review. If you have any questions about this week's episode, please contact me on our Instagram or on Gmail. Each week we will do a small recap from last week and the fan with the best or most intriguing comment or question will get their question or comment discussed. So with that, journalers, I hope you have a wonderful weekend. It's Friday. It's a great day. So have a great one. Thank you so much, Amy, for joining. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun.